Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Hoover Institution senior fellow Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Richard, I have to say, sometimes politics reminds me of a scene from The Godfather 3. Are you a fan of The Godfather? Well, I know at least two-thirds of it. Well, in the third movie, which no one watched, there's a line where Michael Corleone says, every time I think I'm out, they drag me back in. And sometimes that's how I feel about the Mueller and Cohen investigation. Just when you think that we can move on to other issues in the world, there's news broken out of Washington or out of the Southern District of New York on new developments in the various investigations surrounding the Trump administration. So I thought we'd spend a little time uh, talking about what's new before moving on to some bigger, bigger issues. How does that sound? That sounds reasonable. Well, so since the last time we spoke, we've seen things happen to Michael Cohen, uh, Michael Flynn, and Paul Manafort. We're recording this on December 12th, and a few hours ago, Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal attorney, pled guilty in federal court, received a sentence of three years, 36 months, for various uh, alleged crimes involving his uh, work on behalf of then uh, private citizen Donald Trump. Uh, including uh, Cohen's orchestration of payments to two women that President Trump allegedly had affairs with. Now, it was interesting at the hearing today, uh, as he received his sentence, Michael Cohen said, quote, I felt it was my duty to cover up his dirty deeds uh, and his referring to individual one, as some of the documents put it, or more famously, President Donald Trump. And I suspect that allegation by Cohen will be uh, one of the most famous lines out of President Trump's first term, whether it's accurate or not. It's so pointed. Uh, I felt it was my duty to cover up his dirty deeds, but I suspect we'll be talking about it for a long time. At the same time, as I said, it wasn't just Cohen who had, who's in the news. Uh, last week, uh, uh, Robert Mueller uh, alleged that Paul Manafort, who had a plea deal with the investigation, had lied about, among other things, his contacts with the Trump administration since cooperating with Mueller. And then a few days before that, uh, the Mueller investigation submitted a sentencing report to court calling for leniency for Michael Flynn, uh, President Trump's longtime advisor and short-time White House National Security Advisor. Uh, Mueller asked for leniency based on Flynn's uh, cooperation with the investigation, if I recall correctly, 19 interviews of Flynn by the investigation. And we'll see how that plays out. But Richard, with all of this and everything else we've seen before this, what do you think as you see all these reports about the current state of the investigation? Well, I, I have two sets of reaction. One is my response to what the popular reaction is and then my own estimation of the situation. On the former, it's quite clear that no matter where you go on the press, uh, the argument is that the noose is being drawn ever tighter around the president's head. And the question now is, which is the particular poison by which he will find his uh, just end? Uh, there are some people think that you might be able to prosecute him while in office, although the general view on that that is that the sole remedy against the sitting president is impeachment. Those who think that that bar will stick, then say the moment that Trump gets beaten in 2020, all of these immunities off and he can be brought to prosecution for everything. And I believe that that is, in fact, correct in the way in which the law particular runs. Uh, there's also, I think, a real sense that uh, there is a possibility of impeachment. The 
basic uh, argument has already been laid out by Jerry Nadler, who's the head of the Judiciary Committee in the House, um, who has the power to initiate these proceedings. And he certainly has come to the conclusion that these events are impeachable. And then the only question he has to face is whether or not they're strong enough and whether or not he could get some Republican support on this issue to make it look like something other than a partisan vendetta. And my own view about this is I think it would be a mistake for the Democrats to actually initiate the impeachment proceedings. I think they're much more powerful as they simply announce out of the generosity of our spirit, we will not punish him for things we think are impeachable because we know he's going to go south after the entire period of his presidency is over. And, you know, I think this is very much a consensus view. My own view about this is somewhat different. It's actually a form of kind of acute disappointment. This was supposed to be a Russia probe after all. And none of the things, as far as I can see, go to the ultimate question as to whether or not there was some form of cooperation, conspiracy, or collusion between Trump personally or his chief executives and the Russian government. Uh, So on the Flynn thing where he cooperated mightily, I thought it was an abusive process on the part of Mueller to try and prosecute him for anything at all. There was talk that this would be a violation of the Logan Act, uh, which prohibits private citizens from having interactions on foreign policy matters with foreign governments. It has never been applied, as far as I can tell, and certainly never been applied uh, to a situation where an incoming chief executive officer within an administration speaks to his counterparts overseas, you have to do that because you don't want to get acquainted after you're in office. You'd like to do that before. And I think the explanation as to why he copped the plea and cooperated is that he wanted to prevent his son from being investigated further. And so that sort of gives a kind of an aura of illegitimacy to the entire situation. Exactly what he told to the investigators, we don't know because, as we know, um, Mueller is the most closed-mounted prosecutor available. And that could either be because he's concealing a treasure trove of information that he will drop at once or because he's found nothing of value. Uh, Then the Michael Cohen thing, as I've said earlier, I'm very troubled about this. I mean, it's quite clear that if I were Cohen and faced with the threat of going to jail, I would implicate the states. Uh, One has to remember that this is done by way of settlement and allegation. There has been no cross-examination and no public verification of it. One suggestion that I heard, which of course I cannot verify, is that uh, Trump did indeed pay Cohen amount of money which covered the Stormy Daniels incident, but that it was part of a general bill was not itemized as such, at which point you could get payment on the one side without the requisite mens rea to establish a collusion and a conspiracy. And that seems to me something that will come out. I don't see this as an indictable event, uh, wholly apart from the general observation that campaign contributions uh, are very rarely subject to criminal sanctions, let alone those against the president. So that's my second point. And the last point about Manafort is all of the stuff that he's being charged for is 10 years old. Um, He may well have lied with respect to what went on after he had copped his plea agreement. I have no way of verifying this one way or another. But again, it seems to me that it's really outside the scope of the original reference in these things. And so amidst all of the uh, gang warfare against our friend Donald Trump, whom I would gladly see leave office under his own steam long before his term was over, uh, there is still nothing which actually relates to the original charges, namely the question of whether or not there was collusion with the Russians. And it's the absence of that which leaves a kind of a hollow pit in the middle of my stomach. This is what I was waiting for after 18 months of investigation. This is what I have not seen. And your views, Adam, now that I've gone too long? No, well, you haven't at all. But I'd say of everything that's happened since we last spoke, maybe the most interesting development for me 
is not any of the reports or filings we just discussed, but the fact that Andrew McCarthy, a uh, former prosecutor, mm-hmm. a writer, a lawyer I've I've long respected, a writer I've long respected, he he issued a or he made a statement to Fox News uh, a few days after the Cohen filing, saying he now thinks President Trump is very likely to be indicted. And whether or not that's accurate, who knows? And of course, Justice Department guidelines would seem to indicate the president wouldn't be indicted, at least not while he's in office. But the fact that McCarthy's temperature has changed so quickly on this, as far as I understand, I could be wrong, but I think his temperature has changed very quickly on this. I took that as sort of an interesting development. You're right. There isn't a whole lot of Russian collusion, not really any Russian collusion in anything we've seen so far in the last couple of weeks. There has been a little bit of of Russia per se. Cohen uh, says that he now he lied to Congress at one point about the state of discussions between the Trump organization and Russia over a Trump project in Russia during the campaign. Cohen says he lied about that. There's allegations that a Russian citizen of some sort uh, reached out to Cohen to suggest there could be government-to-government synergies between Russia and Trump uh, if he were president. And then finally, one of the things that Manafort allegedly lied to the Mueller team about was his contacts with at least one Russian individual. But of course, like you said, there isn't, there's no smoking gun. There isn't even an unsmoking gun at this point. Mm-hmm. That said, I'm comfortable with this so far. I'm comfortable with the fact that Mueller's investigation hasn't produced a smoking gun or even a gun yet, mm-hmm. because I do think that this is how you normally see a prosecution of an organization proceed with lower level uh lower level officials, beginning with the now almost forgotten George Papadopoulos, uh, whatever his name was. Um, You got it right. Did I get it right? Uh, Yeah, amazingly enough. Feels like 100 years ago. Um, But, you know, starting with a low level volunteer or advisor on the campaign and now Manafort, Flynn, Cohen, who knows what will come next, whether it'll touch on any members of President Trump's family uh, or, or let alone President Trump himself. But I, I'm not one who thinks that Mueller is under an obligation to finish anything quickly. I'd rather he do it right, especially to the extent that it's not deterring President Trump from taking care of his other duties of office. President Trump has been very busy on the on the international front and on the policy front, and so I'm comfortable seeing how this plays out. I don't think there's I don't think there's any real obligation for him to hurry up yet. But of course, it's now been two years, and I think. People are. It, it is worth asking. Well, is there any there there, and when will yes. we know? Well, I mean, I, I disagree a little bit with some of what you've said. I mean, I agree with the argument that you start slow and build to a crescendo uh, works for prosecutors the way in which it works for symphonies. Uh, but it turns out this is a Wagnerian tone rather than a Mozart symphony. This has been going on for 18 months, and people have made the same pronouncement six months ago. You just wait another six months and we'll really have it. And six months have come and gone, and another six months have come and gone. And there's certainly no public movement in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we've already talked about the question that uh, our friend Mueller is loath to give any kind of progress reports of what right. he's doing, how right. he's doing it, and, and you were critical of him on that score. He Definitely. hasn't changed on that, and as far as I can see, he has no plans to change on. So, if I were a betting man, 
I would assume that when this thing comes to its glorious end, it's going to come to an end with a whimper in which you have all the intermediate prosecutions, but nothing heavy on Trump. Now, this is the way I would want to play it out. I assume that Bill Barr will be confirmed as the Attorney General of the United States, uh, <coughs> given his, his, his classic credentials and that he has none of the problems associated with the uh, current incumbent of this, Matthew, whatever his name is. Um, and, you know, when he gets there, I think it is perfectly proper for him as the attorney general to say, look, you know, this thing has been going on. I'm not going to try and strong arm you today, but let's set a date, say April 1st, 2019, and you give me a final report because we're wiping up business at that particular point in time. You've had close to two years. Tell us what it is. Let's move this thing forward, and I'd like to see a written report, and maybe we redact this or that, but I think by and large, the thing really ought to be published. Um I think if you did that, it, it would, I think, uh, be a general improvement of the situation. As far as the, you know, the indictments um, after his leaving office, I am not particularly impressed with the Cohen stuff. Um, I think it is said by a man who's doing it to save his own skin. And as I've indicated, uh, generally campaign contributions of this sort um, are not going to be the subject of a criminal prosecution. So I do think that there's a little bit of selective prosecution against the president. I mean, I feel very awkward about this because I regard his behavior in so many ways as so bizarre and improper that I would gladly see him show the door to himself and resign and put somebody like an adult, like Don, like Michael Pence in the in the White House, uh, but I feel very sharp with that. It's one thing to really strongly disapprove of the way in which a president behaves in his personal demeanor, and quite another to say that that's enough to get him out criminally. And there's no question when you read the press, a lot of it really sounds like the wagons gathering and the knives being drawn, and everybody just wanting to take out a guy whom they hate for so many reasons uh, that it's not at all clear that the criminal prosecution is anything independent of, but rather is subsumed in this sort of general visceral distaste of any and everything Trump, and so they want to get him. So um, I, uh, it's hard to criticize Mueller too explicitly for having said nothing, but I think that the PAC mentality, which is developing around this, is as undignified in its way as is the Trump uh, tweets, which every time you read them, you say, why can't this man just simply learn how to be quiet? Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned my, my past criticisms of aspects of the Mueller investigation because it's right and it was reinforced, I think, by recent events. I mean, <laughs> as, as patient as I am with the Mueller investigation and as favorably predisposed towards uh, Robert Mueller as a, as a person as I am, given his service in government and his service in the Marines, we see once again with the, both the, the filings and the reaction to the filings the fact that Mueller's investigation, if it's going to reach the president, it'll be doing it at the very frontier of some challenging legal questions. Uh, the the questions about when you when it's a criminal of when, when this sort of payment by Cohen actually constitutes not just hush money on behalf of an individual Donald Trump, but a contribution to the Trump campaign for president. Right. That's that's why this is not usually an indictable offense, because it's not clear in most cases whether this kind of payment is done on behalf of the person's personal reputation. Maybe Donald Trump not wanting his Mrs. Trump to find out about these things or whether it was done in service of a presidential campaign. Then, of course, there's also the questions about whether a president of the United States can violate uh, the law of, of obstruction of justice by carrying out his lawful powers as president to oversee the, the, the law enforcement apparatus of, uh, of, of the federal government, 
That's a very difficult legal question. The question on whether the Mueller investigation thinks that the president, a sitting president, can be indicted or subpoenaed. These are all things that I think in this context for a special prosecutor who is not part of the normal – I mean he's part but, but by definition insulated from the normal workings of the Justice Department. These are exactly the sorts of things where we ought to have more transparency up front so the public knows exactly the legal bounds of this. Mueller can investigate the facts, but the law should be established up front. And it's disappointing to me that we still don't have answers on those things. This is, of course, the Morrison v. Olson problem all over again. We don't have this special office for the prosecutor, but politically he's been insulated. One of the sorriest developments, I think, of this period has been the decision, I take it it has actually had some effect, of Jeff Flake to say he won't allow the confirmations to go through on all the remaining Trump judicial nominees until there is the passage of some statute which says that the president cannot unilaterally fire um, Mueller. I think constitutionally he is entitled to do so. I think if it's an obstruction for justice, that could open him up to impeachment. Uh, but but I think that that's, as you said, a very iffy kind of question because there's so many mixed motives in all of these cases. Uh, but I still would like to see this thing drawn to a close. I would like to see it separated from all other issues. I think it would be a terrible mistake, A, to pass legislation that tried to limit the president's ability to fire this man. Uh, by the same token, I think it would be a terrible mistake for him to file it. And the thing that troubles me is, yes, he's a former Ramin, and yes, he's a Republican, but he's also a buddy of Rosenstein, a buddy of Comey, and an establishment-type former Republican who's virulently opposed to Trump. So I thought it was a most impolitic choice to pick somebody who's so much inside the Washington scene that it creates these aggravations, and then just to stress it again, given the fact that he is, to my mind, heavily conflicted, his silence becomes, I think, a greater burden than it would have been if you knew that he was a neutral figure going in. Now, let's talk briefly about a former colleague of yours, actually, Richard. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but your, your longtime, well, current colleague, I or well, he's, he's no longer at Chicago, your former colleague, Cass Sunstein, uh, who writes almost as much as you do. He has a column, a regular column at Bloomberg Opinion. It's always well worth reading. And he staked out a very interesting position today in his latest column. I, I, don't, I, I don't assume... You read the column, so I, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'll just describe it. Uh, Sunstein argues that under the Constitution, anytime a president clearly commits an impeachable offense, Sunstein says the House is obligated to impeach the president and the Senate is obligated to convict on the impeachment. Sunstein, now he, he says at the outset, outset, I'm not talking about any particular Republican or Democratic president, but of course, it's very clear who he's talking about. His argument is that because the, the Constitution says that the House, quote, shall have the sole power of impeachment, and the Senate, quote, shall be the sole trier of impeachment, that the shall requires the House and Senate to go forward with impeachment and an impeachment trial and to convict any time, again, there is a clear uh, – the president has clearly committed an impeachable offense. Now, Sunstein is pushing back against the arguments made by many people, including me this summer in uh, the great weekly Standard magazine, that, uh, that actually these questions are largely political questions to be settled by the political branches and then in turn by the voters in hindsight, and that there really is not a whole lot of legal content – to what 
constitutes the, the circumstances in which the House or Senate must convict. I mean, I compare it almost to a trial, a, a, a jury trial where a jury has the power of nullification, right? The jury has a power to decide not to convict based on its own interpretation of the law. So, but I'm curious, having sketched out Sunstein's argument for you, I mean, what do you make of the House and Senate's role in all of this? I've not heard this argument before, and I think there's a good reason. I, I think it's probably completely incorrect. Uh, when I hear the phrase that the, Senate, the House shall have the sole power of impeachment, um, uh, the shall is referring to the exclusivity, and what it's designed to do is to make sure that there's nobody else who can pick this up, and that would include the indictment. I think that this is extremely important that we have this protection, uh, both for the system and for the president, uh, because if it turns out that any single prosecutor, federal is state could bring one of these things, what would happen would be that the most extreme opponent of any particular president would be the one who would be in the whip seat, and you don't want this. By forcing this back into the House um, for the situation, it turns out that the median voter becomes much more important. The second point is, I mean, in any kind of prosecution, there is always the question of whether or not there's going to be some kind of discretion with respect to what's going on. So uh, to go back to Bill Clinton, I thought it was a terrible mistake on the part of the Supreme Court to say that he had to answer the depositions, even though he wasn't required to go for trial while sitting as president of the United States. But I would think it would be positively bizarre uh, to say that once he lied under oath that the uh, House of Representatives would unanimously presumably be required to say, well, lying under oath is, well, is it an impeachable offense? And so therefore we have to prosecute and the Senate has to convict. Prosecutorial discretion is important in every single case. It seems to me that it's equally important under these circumstances. And I would be very, very loath to say that you can't do it. And the second thing is when you're talking about this is also if you go look at the punishment side, on the Senate, um, punishment shall go no farther than removal from office. And there's this whole discretion question of whether or not you could do something much less. Listening to the argument that Cass made, that just doesn't seem to be part of the picture. It's either if he's convicted that he's out. Um, I can't believe that this is the way in which a system would work uh, because it would mean that if some person wrote one of these nice columns which made it clear that this was an impeachable offense, everybody else is going to be bound by that particular judgment. I agree with your particular situation. I think that this is a political hearing uh, subject to the fact that the words high crime and misdemeanor are designed to introduce some element of judicial restraint on the way in which the politics operates. So I would say it is not a high crime and misdemeanor for somebody to engage in a conduct activity unbecoming for the office uh, so that he's lost the vote of confidence. An impeachment strikes me as a much tougher standard than as a loss of vote of confidence that might happen under a parliamentary system. So I think, in effect, that this is completely wrong and that the customary understanding, which as far as I can tell has existed from the beginning of the time, would apply in this particular case. And I mean, in fact, that's clearly the view that Jerry Nadler had. He says, I'm not going ahead with this unless I get some Republicans who are willing to sign on. Um, I think under Cass's view, uh, he'd have to go ahead with this, and then the Republicans would be forced to acquiesce. 
past if it turned out we believed, and this is of course debatable, uh, what happened in connection with the uh, Cohen thing was litigable. There's another issue here which we haven't touched upon, which I'd like to mention very briefly. In virtually all the other cases in which you've had impeachment, there's never been an issue of fact. I mean, so you want to go after Andrew Johnson? Yes, he did fire Stanton when he was Secretary of War. And the question was whether or not that was illegal. But in this particular case, we have no idea as to exactly what transpired and all the details apart from Cohen's lateral statement. So are we going to try and run an impeachment situation in which you're going to have fact witnesses dealing with what's going on here? Uh, you can see the same thing happening if, and I don't think it will now, I'm virtually certain it won't. If, suppose Ms. Blasey Ford decided to come forward and to testify um, in the House. There'd be cross-examination, fact inquiries. There is nothing about the impeachment mechanism that works for questions of fact. It seems to work only after the facts have been decided in some other form or are contested and then you're making judgment. And in a case like this, where you have all those factual uncertainties, the notion that there's any duty to prosecute or to convict without having a very close knowledge of what the record about strikes being is way over the top. So I think in the end, this is a very uneasy mix between a political and a judicial process. That's the way it's always been understood. And that is, in fact, the correct reading. Yeah, I, I think that the Senate could hear witnesses. I'm not I'm not so worried about about that, about the Senate being a trier of fact based on factual allegations made by the House. But again, the point is that the facts have to come from somewhere. Right. That we just don't have a record yet. And I hope I've done I hope I've done justice to Sunstein's argument. People ought to read it. Um, his like I said, his columns are always well worth reading and he's usually a pretty nuanced thinker. But in this case, uh, it seems to me that he sort of begs all the important questions by saying clearly a president has clearly uh, committed conduct. That's an impeachable offense. As a, as a very smart lawyer friend of mine quipped on Twitter, anytime you see that many adverbs or clearlies in an argument, it means that they're fudging on all the important points. They're trying to smooth smooth them over. But uh, we shall see. Richard, can we talk about another, another statesman who knows something about impeachment? I'm thinking of uh, Chief Justice John Marshall. Well, I nearly... mean, he's not involved in this case, is he? No, but he, he, he found himself within spitting distance of impeachment after the 1800 election. Oh, he was not, yes, that was a great election, almost ended the republic. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the, you know, so far we're hanging on, but he almost saw him, he, al- he almost saw his, his uh, he al- almost saw himself impeached in the aftermath of that election. His colleague, Justice Chase, was unsuccessfully impeached, and that followed on the impeachment of a federalist trial judge. Uh, I raised John Marshall because I recently wrote about him in a book review for the Wall Street Journal. Actually, I think the day before you reviewed another book. Yeah, we have a man off the Journal. Journal. That's right. I, I, I like our market power. But um, there are t- two great new books about Marshall out right now. I reviewed a book called John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court by Richard Brookheiser, who's, rev- who's written biographies of Washington, Madison, Hamilton, Governor Morris, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and now Marshall. There's another book out uh, almost a year ago, well worth reading, by Joel Richard Paul. It's called Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times. Another great biography, both of them adding to a stockpile of great biographies of Marshall. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking and writing about not just Marshall, uh, but on the chief justices more generally, thinking about their role in our constitutional government, 
But Marshall is a, a truly singular figure among the founders. He's often, he's not nearly enough grouped among the founding fathers, but he should be because in many ways he completed the project of the Federalists. And astonishingly, he did it over a three-decade period, most, uh, almost completely, I suppose, almost completely after the Federalist uh, Party ceased to be a meaningful political force. Which now, is, I know, which is, which oh, was 1800, ahead. right? Exactly. He was appointed on the eve of that election. And for the rest of his career, he found himself uh, working in a court that was increasingly staffed by Republicans. I joked, uh, I quipped in the, in the Wall Street Journal review, Jefferson said in his, in his first inaugural, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. Uh, he probably didn't quite mean it. Marshall actually did put that into effect on the Supreme Court over three decades with a series of unanimous opinions, or at least opinions without dissents. And I know, Richard, from your work, you're a big fan of what, a lot of what Marshall achieved on the court in terms of knitting together a national market. Uh, in terms of creating a dormant commerce clause uh, or recognizing a dormant commerce clause that puts uh, real limits on the state's ability to impede commerce. And so readers of The Wall Street Journal already have my thoughts on Marshall. But, Richard, what are yours? Well, let me start, I think, before he was president, I bet president, chief, um, chief justice of the Supreme Court. He was born, if memory serves me correct, in 1755, and he <laughs> dies 80 years later on the bench in 1835. But this man was active in government in the 48 years before he was appointed. I think he was active in the Virginia ratification debates. I think he may have been in Congress. Is that yes. correct? Yes, uh, he I mean, was. That's, that's where he famously referred mm-hmm. to the president as the sole organ of federal power on the yes, international stage, seen, which became essentially the dominant position going much later. Right. And I, I think what really happened is that his views of how this situation ought to be put together were formed in large part doing his part of the political thing. And what I would want to stress is that the first thing that impresses you when you start looking at the Constitution is that the compromises that seem to be imperative in 1787 start to look very faintly ridiculous and completely dangerous by the time you get to 1789 or 1791. And let me just mention a couple of them. They're not all of the um, martial variety. Some of them are story, but remember the two of them are hand and glove on most of these issues. And so the first one is, you know, what about judicial review? And Marshall, I think, understood that in a parliamentary system, you don't have to have judicial review because there's basically only one government and a prime minister. Uh, but when you have an American system where you have both separation of powers, a president who is not accountable to Congress, and a federal government which is independent from the states, and you try and use the doctrine of political supremacy, there is no logical place in which you could pay it. So when I went to England in 1964 to study all this stuff, parliamentary supremacy was a given and there was only one house. Doesn't translate into the United States. And then what you do is you start looking at the Constitution and say, well, now what is there about judicial review? And it turns out there's nothing explicit about it, but there is a long tradition, Philip Hamburg has written very well about this, in which it turns out that the Congress and the President are not allowed singly or together to force upon any particular court matters that the Constitution does not allow it to hear. And that was ostensibly the issue that took place in Marbury v. Madison. So what makes our friend Marshall a great man here? Well, first thing, of course, is that he 
basically exploits the ambiguity for all it's worth. He has a case in which it turns out what he's doing is refusing jurisdiction. So he doesn't have to go later on to a president for enforcement of his particular view. So he doesn't have to claim explicit supremacy of other, over other branches. And we all remember the famous Andrew Jackson quote, you know, uh, they've managed to make, uh, Marshall has made his opinion, now let him go enforce the darn thing. Uh, enforcement's not an issue because the short-term consequence was, was that the commission was denied. And so it turns out that the Jeffersonians won and there was nothing that they had to do. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And then on the other hand, he said it's emphatically the place of the Congress or the court to say what the law is. And that sounds very much like judicial supremacy, but no way in which to challenge it. So this guy is all over the map. And I think actually the following is true. Um, If you're trying to be sort of historical about it, Judicial parity, not judicial supremacy, was the basic constitutional design. I think it was basically flawed. And I think Marshall sort of understood that and he set the seeds for turning it over. Tragically, the next case that comes up is the one we at least want to see this happen, uh, which is Dred Scott. Marshall is long dead, of course. But Tawney now puts the position where Lincoln runs a presidential campaign essentially against judicial supremacy. Uh, This is the dominant theme from the time of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Okay. Second issue on which Marshall could not sit because he was conflicted on the land title was whether or not there is federal review of state judgments. And so here I'm reading Marshall and Story together. And it's an absolute calamity uh, to have a situation in which the final arbiters of the federal constitution are the state judges in each of the individual states, which is the way the second half of the Supremacy Clause reads, which is reinforced by the fact that the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction can be denied on any issue whatsoever by Congress. This is clearly an effort to essentially limit the Supreme Court, to put it as subject to the checks and balances, to make sure that the states have the whip hand. And Story essentially upholds Section 25 of the Judiciary Act and turns that over. Marshall clearly agreed with all of that comes to the Commerce Clause, you know, I have a lot of respect for what Marshall did. And it's hard to remember what the debate was, um, Adam. It's the famous case of Gibbons and Ogden. And Marshall must spend several pages explaining how it is that navigation on an interstate river starts at one end of the journey and ends at the other. And people ask, well, why on the earth does he spend so much time talking about this? It seems perfectly obvious to everybody except for Chandler Kent who in an earlier case on exactly the same monopoly decreed that the federal power to regulate commerce amongst the states allowed it to post guards at the borderline between one state and the other, but not to follow the journals into the interior. And I think Marshall really understood the sort of integrative nature of the Commerce Clause in a way that was not understood uh, by uh, Chancellor Kent. Uh, But he was at the same point a politician to the nth degree because he understood full well that if he allowed the commerce power to extend to the solely internal commerce within the states or manufacturing or agriculture, it would lead to a southern rebellion because it meant that the federal government could abolish slavery. And so he was both a political type on the one hand and a nationalist on the other. Very, very skillful kind of guy. And then there are just other cases cases where I think he may well be wrong, like in McCullough in Maryland on whether or not there's the authorization of the, bank, of the bank. But what's so extraordinary about the man is you read his opinion. They are hypnotically brilliant. Uh, his ability, his command, his self-assurance, uh, the sort of the majesty and the sweep. You knew that there was no clerk in Christendom 
who could have written any of those opinions. They were all written by the chief justice himself, right? And it's the majesty, I think, which carries these things forward to this day. Uh, Every American constitutional law course has at least a half a dozen martial opinions, and they're all there because they stake out positions that are so important uh, that whether you agree with him or not, you cannot ignore him, and that is the sign of a great, great chief justice. Gibbons versus Ogden is such an interesting opinion. Marshall belabors the point about commerce uh, and the role of the federal government and the states. At one point, I can't remember his exact words, but Hadley Arcus, the political philosopher, loves to point out that at one point Marshall apologizes for belaboring at such length principles that should be axiomatic. And so he suggests to the reader that so much of the substance of, of Gibbons versus Ogden on the Constitution, the states, and the federal government are self-evident. I mean, they'd be self-evidently true to Federalists, maybe not so much to Republicans. But the other interesting feature, another un- another interesting feature of Gibbons versus Ogden is the fact that Marshall lays out what we now call the Dormant Commerce Clause, but he then stops short. He doesn't decide the case on those grounds. He decides yeah. it on preemption grounds. Yes, yeah, so on the on the coastal acts. That's right. right. That's right. And and it's in some ways it echoes his approach in Marbury versus Madison, where he much more famously announces the power of judicial review, declares that the president's actions in that case or the secretary of state's actions were unlawful. But then uh, he because of of the court's power to, to review the constitutionality of statutes, he declares the jurisdictional statute unconstitutional, says the court actually doesn't have the power to follow through on its ruling with respect to the substance of the Jefferson administration's actions. So he declares judicial review, uh, but does not go so far as to take action against the president. And for me, reading the Marshall biographies for that review, one of the points I made in the journal was that you see here so much of Marshall's political prudence and self-restraint, where he made the points he wanted to make, but he stopped short of going further just out of sheer self-preservation, his own self-preservation, the court's self-preservation, uh, his willingness to accept that just because he might be able to try to do something and he might have legal power to do something, uh, he shouldn't necessarily test the frontiers of that. One thing I came across, I think, in the Brookheiser biography, but then I, I looked up the original letter. In the heat of the, of the Justice Chase impeachment, this is after Marbury versus Madison, uh, John, Ro- uh, John Marshall, John Roberts, Almost said. John Marshall. John Marshall made a a point in a letter, either to Chase himself, or I think to maybe Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, another Federalist, that maybe it would be better for Congress to establish congressional review of the court's decisions. If the choice is between uh, judicial supremacy and impeachment, Marshall would have rather, at least for the sake of argument in that letter, he said he'd rather give away judicial supremacy in order to avoid constant impeachment of judges. And so for some, for the author of Marbury versus Madison to concede that maybe it would be better for Congress to just review the work of the courts was, again, I think another very prudential move by Marshall. And needless to say, when we read Marshall today, it's hard not to think about the court, hard not to think about John Roberts. He himself has said in speeches that, that in the, the court's conference room where they hang portraits of Jay and Marshall. He looks up at them and, and feels that they're watching down on him. But I think all of us could learn a lot from the way Marshall conducted himself in office 
in terms of pursuing principle, uh, often heavily contested principle, uh, but with a measure of, of prudential self-restraint. Yes, I have another observation to make about Gibbons and Ogden. Um, there was a point there that he fudged. Um, this was a question where there was regarded to be a local exclusive grant. And let's assume for the sake of argument that the state of New York can make a grant of the sole power to run steamboats in New York Harbor to any private party. I actually think that that's wrong. I think it's a violation of the public trust. But that's not a federal question. Then the question is, what's the correct answer? It seems to me that the right answer is as follows. Yes, uh, the boats can go from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, into New York waters. Uh, but when they go there, they're subject not to a rule which insulates them from the uh, franchise, but they have to pay basically a reasonable and non-discriminatory fee with respect to what is going on. Uh, so this becomes a form of the Dormant Commerce Clause, which essentially says you can't give preference to local guys over non-local guys. And so the appropriate measure would be if there's a local fellow running there who pays so much per passenger, so much per mile, they could use the same formula with respect to this particular case. And I've been teaching and thinking about the public trust doctrine independently of this and thinking and teaching about the patent stuff independently of this. And one of the things I think that's so strange about this case is that neither of those two issues are even explored. And this is of extreme importance because you want to start talking about you know, violations of the public trust, in my view, you know, parking a Obama pub presidential center in the middle of Jackson Park in Chicago where it disrupts everything is a classic illustration of whether or not a government simply has uh, the freedom to make conveyances as if it were a private owner of property. And that's an issue of immense importance, uh, but it doesn't get raised in the Supreme Court in a, in a very backhanded fashion when you get to the Illinois Central case, Central Railway case, uh, which takes place, I think, in about 1893. Uh, so there are lots of things that he kind of puts aside. But of course, all Supreme Court justices do that sort of thing. And let me just sort of say in this thing, uh, I think it's not likely that there will be any chief justice of the United States Supreme Court who will displace um, displace, uh, John Marshall as numero uno. I think he's probably the most influential jurist in the history of the United States. He may not be the most epigrammatic, but that's not where his style comes. He's not an epigram guy. Um, He's a guy of sweeping power and moral authority. Uh, But he certainly has to be regarded in terms of structure as much more important than somebody like Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, who wrote some very memorable decisions, right, but who never wrote anything which sort of defined the way in which the federal government was organized in a fashion that Marshall did. Marshall had an incredible advantage. He came first, but he didn't blow it. Well, that's a good note on which to finish. Uh, Richard, I enjoyed our conversation as always. I'm looking forward to speaking again in a few weeks when I'm sure there'll be new news out of the the Mueller investigation that we'll discuss and, and perhaps other things too. I always enjoy it. Me too. So on behalf of Richard Epstein and all of our colleagues at the Hoover Institution, thanks for listening. Be sure to check out some of the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, including Bill Whalen's Area 45, Peter Robinson's Uncommon Knowledge, uh, Richard Epstein's The Libertarian, Victor Davis Hanson's The Classicist, Lonnie Chen's new podcast, Crossing Lines. And thanks for following all of our work at the Hoover Institution. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.